We have started a few weeks ago a study where we're just going different expositionally a little bit through different passages. And I forgot to dismiss those of you who are doing the new members class. So those of you involved with that, you're supposed to be headed to the basement if you haven't already left, headed to the basement classroom where you're going to be involved with that new members class. But back to what I was saying is we're going through the book of Acts and we're not going to be going in a, in a very fast pace. Already I've got six messages and we haven't even got out of chapter one, just the beginning of chapter two. And since there's 28 chapters, we'll be here until the Lord comes back. Um, but tonight what I want to be doing is I want to be preaching a very unusual text. It's very, for me, it's extremely difficult to preach, to talk about, because it's the first sermon. So I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon. And we're critiquing, if you would put it that way, about somebody's first sermon. It is Peter's first sermon that he's going to preach in Acts chapter 2. And it's marvelous. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this study this week, going over it and learning what I did to see how it flows. But um, I remember, you know, at the, in the past, helping, talking, seeing, hearing people talk about the first time they preached. And you have these different accounts. I remember that some of the young people that we worked with over the years, the preacher boys, it would be their first sermon that they would speak to you. And oh, some of them were so scared, so nervous to speak. And uh, there's one account that I was reading about a young man who wrote who said that he had pages. Let me read what he says. During my first sermon, I wanted the Lord to help me not to speak too much or too little. I had writings of my script on two full pages, small hand written notes. I preached from the pages and ended the sermon in about 10 minutes. After the service, there were so many people who offered to give me advice on how to expand the sermon. God bless their kind. You know, that they wanted him to go longer. Here's one that one fellow's talking about. He was his first year as a youth pastor. He's on a church staff, he said, and we held a special Christmas service. And at this special Christmas family service, we decided to have all the children sit with their parents during the message. The service went really well. Everyone seemed to be enjoying the drama, the games, the Christmas music. And then it came time for the sermon. With a burst of enthusiasm, our brand new pastor began his message with this line. I remember how old I was when I found out that Santa wasn't real. He had forgotten the children were in the service, and he spilled the beans to everyone. I'll be honest, it was just a little bit funny to see all the parents lunge towards their kids, covering their ears in a frenzy. For those who weren't able to distract their little ones, the effect was instant. A few of the kids gazed with open mouths and eyes at the stage in disbelief. Others turned to their parents in deep trauma. We finally refer to that service as the day that Santa died. <laughs> this fellow is talking about an experience when he went and preached for the first time at a friend's church. I was preaching for a friend when I heard a strange noise. Snip, snip, snip. What could that have be? I, on my left, about four or five pews back, there was a lady I had met prior to the service. She was a little odd, but they told me she was faithful. Every time the church would meet, you could count on this sister being there. Now, I want you to get this picture. She was sitting with her foot on the pew. Her bony knee was all the way up next to her head, and she was focused on snipping her toenails while I was preaching. I guess my message was really boring. Here's one fellow, he says, there are certain things that seem to happen only in church. I was preaching a revival out near the uh, West Coast some years ago, and right in the middle of my message, I found myself living a cell phone commercial. A phone rang in the midst of the audience. Most people at that time would frantically grab for their cell phone, shut it off with lightning speed, and, ask, and act as if it was somebody else's phone. But not this guy. He answered the phone loudly in the middle of my preaching. Worse still, the connection must not have been really good. 
because he began moving around the aisles and saying, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I had to stop what I was doing and wait for him to wander out into the foyer so he could get a better connection and I could move on. One fellow was talking about an experience that he had when he was a guest preacher out in Grand Junction, Colorado. He said that there was a woman in the church who remembered she had forgotten to turn off the stove when she came to church. So she scribbled a little note, passed it down the row, whispering to the usher to give it to her husband who was ushering on the other side of the, uh, uh, the room. The usher got confused. He took the note up to the preacher, handed it to him, and said he's supposed to read it out loud. So the preacher opened it up, and it said, Please go home and turn off the gas. The, pra- the pastor did not think it was funny that he, the, that note came his way. Uh, we've had the situation where things have happened here that have been weird. We have had situations where somebody has died during the service on the foyer. That's odd. We've had one where somebody, years ago, first service we were here, somebody held up the Bible, was pointing, no, no, no. We had the situation, not too, uh, several years ago, where it was during the invitation, and people think that during the invitation, nobody is looking. I am. And so right around in this area, this isn't the room, so you sitting here don't feel bad. But I looked down, and here was a young teenage couple, and they were lock-lipped into an embrace. And the girl looked up and saw my eyes, and she's like, total panic. The rest of that service, I didn't look at them at all. It was just very, very awkward. Certain things happen that are really strange in sermons, and for Peter, Peter has a first-time experience that's a little bit strange, but really wonderful. Let's set the scene of what's happening in Peter's time. We already talked about this this morning, and I want you to get some facts, so I'm not going to read through the introductory remarks. We dealt with it this morning, but in the first few verses, it tells us about this sermon. It's happening on the day of Pentecost, the very first Pentecost after Jesus has arisen. So we're talking roughly around 50 days after he has died, buried, and resurrected. This is going to be the sermon that Peter is going to preach. When he's preaching it, there's lots of people gathered there. We have found that out this morning when he said the multitudes came together. We've pointed out that they were probably gathered gathered in the temple area around what was called Solomon's porch. It would be the ante rooms that were all around the exterior of the courtyard where they could get together, preach and teach, do some Bible studies. Probably that's where Jesus as a child was uh, dealing with the leaders when his mother and father didn't know where he was for those three days. And so they're in this temple area and there's all this going on. And it had to be a large enough area that 3,000 people respond at the end. So it's in this setting where there's a lot of people. And so what else is brought up is this idea that um, some people have kindly said to me, you know, Peter preached, and if we read it, it's only 10 minutes, and you go for a long time. You only read portions of what Peter preached. In that text, it says, and with many other words, he did testify. So we don't have his complete sermon. As well, what stands out to me is this, is this happened right after the baptism of the Spirit. And remember we talked about this morning when the baptism of the Spirit came for the very first time, God did some supernatural signs that would catch the attention of the crowd and of the Jews, uh, the disciples, that this was something unusual. Remember there was three things that we pointed out this morning that happened that supernaturally would catch everybody's attention. Do you remember the first one? The sound. Okay, all of a sudden there was the sound of the mighty wind. The second one. Okay, you had this thing of the, they could see those cloven tongues of fire. Then what was the third one? 
the tongues. Then they start speaking languages that they never knew. And the crowd is looking and saying, wait a minute, how can these guys who are Galileans, untrained individuals, not scholarly, common folk like you and I, and he's, they're saying, hey, this is, these guys are speaking in foreign languages. All of them are speaking in multiple different languages that they probably didn't know. Well, they didn't know, but the crowd is understanding that they probably didn't know it as well. And so the supernatural signs accompanied the rival of the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is, we point out this morning, the crowd has several reactions that we read about. The crowd, some of them are confounded, some are amazed, they're astonished, some are questioning. These Galileans, and again, I don't mean to be rude, but this would be basically what we would say today. These are uneducated, these are hicks, these are some people that just, they don't have a lot of formal education. How is it that they're able to do this? And so they're mocking him, and the people say, we hear it in our own dialect. They could understand, they were speaking it so well. They could differentiate the speech, the dialects, and everything. It was a work of God. And then there was the other group that was suspicious, that was critical, the other group of the Jews there. They start mocking. They say, oh, they're all drunk. And we said this morning, Peter responded very quickly. He said that they're not drunk. It's too early in the day. It's only 9 a.m. People, people aren't at the bars aren't open. They're not drunk. And then Peter stands up and he preaches this with many other words. But watch what he says, which is a fantastic explanation. He says, starting with verse 14, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. Now that's interesting because there's a lot of lying going on. The Jewish leaders are accusing these disciples of stealing the body of Jesus. So a lot of falsehoods are taking place. Peter is standing up and going to speak the truth. For these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour, it's 9 a.m., but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it, then he quotes Joel chapter 2. It came to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days my spirit. They shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, the signs in the earth beneath. There's going to be blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held down in, in, just in bondage of it. For David spoke concerning him, I saw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer thy holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You shall make me full of joy and thy countenance. He's finished quoting, and he returns to his speech. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, 
that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is still with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up a Messiah to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not to be left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses." Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know confidently, assuredly, that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, a word for God, both God and Christ. Basically what Peter's doing is he's defending, he's explaining what's going on. And if I were to divide this whole sermon down, I think what he's doing is explaining what has happened, how it happened, and why it happened. Let me see if we can walk it through. They're saying they're drunk, and Peter says, we're not drunk. He said, this is that which Joel spoke about. And so he's making it clear that he's going to explain that this is a handwork of God. God is moving at this point. And he goes back to that prophecy of Joel. And some people today say, well, this was a full fulfillment of what Joel spoke about in Joel chapter 2. No, no, that's not what he was getting at. You see, the Joel chapter 2 passage is a prophecy that is dealing with the last days. Now, you know, if you've read your Bible at all, that the last days started with the, with the Pentecost and continued all the way through until what we're talking about in Sunday school, going to be all the way until Jesus Christ comes back. Some of those last days are more last than others. But in a sense, in Hebrews, it makes it clear that these are the last days with the first coming of Jesus Christ. Christ. But what is he talking about when Joel makes the prophecy? Joel refers to the very end, the last days, which would include the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom. And he's saying, what he's talking about is this, Joel talked about things that would happen in the tribulation period and with the coming of Jesus Christ. And he points out, when Christ comes back, he's going to pour his spirit upon all the people who would enter into his kingdom. But before that pouring out of the spirit, to all the people that would go into that kingdom. So, by the way, this isn't a fulfillment of that because only 120 people in that one city at that one moment got the Spirit. He's saying in this text, he says, before that there's going to be wonders in the sky. There's going to be judgments. The sun will turn to blood. There's going to be the smoke. There's going to be the darkness. Those are what we've been talking about in Sunday school. That happens in that last seven years. When during that period where an antichrist is ruling and there's judgment upon the earth, Joel is making prophecy. Joel's prophecy is talking about that time. And so Peter is not saying what you're seeing here in Jerusalem is a fulfillment of all those end times prophecies. That's not what he's saying. Don't be confused by that. He is just saying that what I want to do is I want to tell you this is that. This isn't that event. But this is that working of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit who is going to be doing some of those marvelous things in the future that we all look forward to, that we all have heard about. He's talking to people that have studied this. People who have heard about this in their Sabbath schools. And he's saying, you remember, we've heard about this. We studied about when the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to do all these marvelous things. This is that. 
This is that spirit that we think is working in the future. He's working right here, right now. And so the Holy Spirit has already come. All those other events are down the road, but he's here in an unusual way, just like Jesus promised. So this is that in the sense that this is God at work. So he's explaining to them very simply that fact, that idea that what has happened here is a real new work of God. A work of God where the Holy Spirit is starting a new age type of work in the lives of the believers. That is what is happening. His explanation. This is the Spirit doing an unusual work. The bulk of his message goes into why is this happening? I'm sorry, how is this happening? How did this take place? That's when he shifts gears and he starts talking in verse 22. And he starts explaining all about Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about this Jesus and he's saying, how is it that the Holy Spirit came? How is it that the Holy Spirit has arrived here at this moment? Now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about Christ. Okay? But jump to the very end of his statement. He lays out a logical argument. And when you go back, he says to them, he says, now, you guys know some of this, what I'm saying. You know that Jesus came. You know that he was crucified. And he's going to basically say to them at the very end, this is happening because Jesus, verse 33, if you see it, Jesus has shed or poured out the Holy Spirit. This is how it's happening. It points back to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has gone to heaven, Jesus is the one that has sent the Spirit. This fits perfectly with what Jesus has already promised his disciples. Jesus has already been said to them that when I leave, I will send the Spirit. So follow the whole thing of what Peter's doing. Peter starts explaining and reminding them about Jesus. He says that this Jesus was one of us. He lived amongst us. He was from Nazareth. He was a real person. He says God even endorsed him. He did signs, wonders, miracles. And they knew about it. Some of these people may have had their relatives healed by Jesus. Some of them may have seen other people come with, blind, with being blind or lame. And they, they knew they understood. He says, you know about this. In your midst, you saw that Jesus worked the miracles. And he says, but what happened, he makes it very clear in verse 23, instead of accepting this Jesus who was approved of God, he says, he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and you have taken him, and you have crucified him. What he's making very clear here is you people got involved, you were a part and parcel of rejecting Christ, but... God knew that would happen. God had a plan here. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that got out of control. God knew that when he would send his son, you hard-hearted Jews, you would reject him. He says that this Jesus didn't deserve to die. This Jesus who came and did wonderful works, and the Bible says that he went about doing good, and he never sinned. He never got angry, impatient. He never uh, took it out on people. He did only good for the people, but they rejected him. They resented him. They crucify him. He didn't deserve to die for any sin that he has done. Instead, he died for whose sin? Okay, ours, those Jewish people. And so he's making it very clear. He says, wicked hands put Jesus to death. God knew what would happen. Because God had planned that this sinless one would come and that he would live a life, but God knew that people would reject him. But he was willing to do it 
Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He knew that Jesus was totally willing, not my will, but thine be done, that Jesus would make the sacrifice for our sins. And so there was those illegal trials. There was that wickedness by, by Judas and many others who turned against Christ. And he's going to make it very clear. He said, Jesus really did die. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out alone. He makes it clear, he says, by wicked hands he was crucified. And he says he was slain. Those are words that are death sentence words. Jesus really died. And so he's talking to this group of people who know these facts, who have seen this or have heard about him. And he says, you people were, were part of the crowd. You people as an audience. Because 50 days earlier, some of them said, we have no king but Caesar. What should we do with Jesus? Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? They said Barabbas. What do we do with Jesus? What did the crowds yell out? Crucify him. And so he's making clear, he's rehearsing what some of these people saw or were actually involved in and he's setting up this stage, this argument, this explanation that Jesus came and he, he did all this good. You killed him but he came back to life. And he highlights it. He says, God raised him up. God broke the bonds of death, of the hell, and of, the, of captivity of the grave. And Jesus came back out of the grave. Thank God he did. And Jesus wasn't held down by the grave anymore. And he says, we are witnesses of this. We saw him. All of us standing here, we saw Jesus. We saw him ascend. We talked with him for 40 days. He walked and talked and ate amongst us. And he was with us. And so some of us saw him in the daytime, the nighttime. Some of us in small groups, big groups. We ate with him. We talked with him. It was in multiple different places. And he's giving witness to this. And then what he does is Peter quotes from the Old Testament especially one of their heroes, King David. He says, David talked about this. And he quotes from Psalm chapter 16, and there's this passage that we already read where he is saying and leading up to it, verse 27 is the capstone of that passage, you will not leave my soul in the grave. He says, in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter is saying, David wasn't talking about David because he makes the comment, he says, David wasn't saying he's going to be the one that's going to be taken out of the grave. True, that's going to happen far in the future. But David, he's saying, David was talking about the Messiah, about Christ. And Peter's standing there and he's saying, David is still in the tomb. David is still buried in the sepulcher here in Jerusalem. He's still there. His bones are still there. He's talking about Jesus. He was predicting this. David of old was giving prophecy. He was talking about his descendant, the promised Messiah. And so remember now, the Jews believe there's a promise to Messiah. They believe the descendant, uh, it would be a descendant of David. He's taking everything that they know uh, from prophecy and he's winding it all together and saying, you want to know how all this happened? You want to know why the Holy Spirit is here right at this time? Because you, you took Jesus, you killed him. The one that was clearly did the miracles, the signs. Nobody doubts he's Messiah. You killed him. He came back to life. And when he came back to life, he goes on, he quotes some more of the book of Psalms. He's going to say, Jesus not only came back to life, but then Jesus ascended up into heaven. That's verses 33, where he says, He is now at the right hand of the Father, exalted, having received the Father the promise he has shed this forth. 
And then he quotes again David from the Old Testament in verse 34 and 35 where he says, you will sit at my right hand. That's a quote from the book of Psalms that is talking about Jesus being elevated at the right hand of God. And what is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? He is making it clear that this Jesus at the right hand of God sits in God's favor. He has God's blessing. He's the one that sent the Holy Spirit. This is how it happened. Jesus died, buried, resurrected, rose again, ascended up into heaven, and when he went to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's what you see here. This is that. It is a work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus, whom you rejected, now sits at the right hand of God, proving himself to have been God, sacrificing his life for us. He now has sent the Holy Spirit. This fits exactly what Jesus told the disciples the night before he died. Remember what he said to them? I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you. I tell you, it is absolutely expedient. It is necessary for you that I go away for if I go not away, the comforter cannot come. But if I go away, I will send him to you. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus predicted. So audience, you're sitting here, you're wondering what is happening? It's a working of God. It's the Holy Spirit. You're wondering how it happened? Jesus is the answer. Jesus, the Son of God, came, died, buried, resurrected. You were a part of that rejection of him, but he rose again. He's sitting in heaven at the right hand of God. He sent his Holy Spirit. And then he concludes why it all happened. And that's the conclusion of that last verse. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know confidently, be absolutely persuaded that God has made it clear, this same Jesus whom you crucified, he's God, he's the Messiah. He is Adonai, he is Christos. And so he's bringing it all, to, to bring it all around saying, you who rejected Jesus, you're going to have to answer to him one day. Ouch. That audience is sitting there and listening to it. And he's talking, he says, there's proof. The one you crucified, God crowned him. There's proof that you put him in a grave, God enthroned him. You cast him out, God caught him up. He's saying to these people, you executed him, but God exalted him. That's what's happening here. This Jesus is at work. And so their response when they hear it, what does it say in your Bible? What do they do when they all of a sudden hear the fact and it sinks deep into their hearts that they had rejected the Messiah that God had validated. What does your Bible say in the verse 37? When they heard this, what's their reaction? Okay. Some of you have, they were pricked in their heart. Somebody have something different? What's it say? Pierced in the hearts? The original word has this idea. They were absolutely stunned. They were, they were shocked as the reality set in. What did we do? Are you kidding me? We rejected the Messiah. And now they're seeing it for, the, for a lot of them for the first time. And they're going, uh-oh. And their initial response, after they're stunned, after they're pierced, after they're, as he said, pricked in the heart, then what do they ask? What's the question? What do we do? What do we do? Oh no, we made a horrible mistake, so what do we do? 
And so they're very concerned. They're they're absolutely convicted that it's what they did caused Jesus to die and by God's grace he rose again. What do we do with this Jesus? He's at God. He's sitting at at the hand. He's at work in our midst. What's he going to do to us? And the disciples share with them. They say, hey, listen, he's not angry with you that he'll destroy you. Do they deserve to be destroyed? Absolutely. Do we deserve to be destroyed? Yes, because we're sinners. But God so loved the world that he sacrificed his son. So they're asking, what do we do? And Peter responds, which we're going to take time to look at more in depth, especially this whole phrase in verse 38. But he says, you need to repent. You need to repent of what you have done. Then be baptized in the name of Jesus because of the remission of sin. And then he says a little bit further on, he says you need to save yourselves from this untoward generation down in verse 40. Basically what he's saying is you've got to stop going along with the crooked nation, national leaders. That's what he's telling them. Don't buy the company line that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been putting about this Jesus. Don't believe this idea that we stole the body. Don't believe this idea Jesus was an ordinary man. Let it sink in deep. Jesus was God in the flesh. He died for our sins. And you're going to have to answer to him one day. And so they're saying, okay, what do I do? What do I do? And he's, their bottom line is he's saying, you, you need to associate. You need to line up with Jesus. You need to just come and say, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to put my faith and trust in him and him alone to be my savior to get me to heaven. Which fits what Jesus said where he said, I am the way, the the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Come to the, stop following the company line and believe what Jesus preached. For whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. The Bible doesn't say whoever gets baptized. The Bible doesn't say whoever goes to church. The Bible doesn't say whoever's a good American. The Bible says you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he alone is the way to get us to heaven. And so he's saying you need to identify with Jesus Christ. Line up with him. Associate with him. By believing in your heart and then following some of his commands like declaring like these folk did tonight. Declaring I'm going to follow Christ. And so that is the why of this message. And they responded. A lot of them. A lot of them, it says, they gladly received what the, preacher, what the apostles were preaching. And then, he says, 3,000 of them, they were added unto that group. So they associated. They lined up. They got baptized. They did all those things. And so in this whole story, this whole sermon, he answers what, what's going on and what is happening. It is something that is a hand of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus promised, Jesus is making this happen so that you realize Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And they respond, many of them responded the right way. So when it's all said and done, what do we take away from that sermon? There are several things that I think we here in 2023 need to take away with us. Let let me just highlight them real quickly. Okay, preaching about a sermon Preaching a sermon about a sermon, what do we learn? For me, this was extremely beneficial. Because for me, who is doing sermonizing and doing that, it was a real good lesson and a reminder for what I'm supposed to be doing. I think it's a good reminder for what a church is supposed to be doing. But first of all, I think the most important thought is if you are here and you do not know for sure that you are on your way to heaven, you're hoping so, you're guessing so, you have an idea in your mind that, you know, it would be nice to go to heaven, and it will, 
But if you are not sure, you are not confident, you do not recall a time when you got born again, where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then that should be what you do right now, like these people did. Repent and ask Jesus, who is the only one who can forgive you of your sins. No church, no priest, no action. It is Jesus who is the Savior of the world. Not some denomination, not some preacher, not even your own family, your parents. Jesus is the Savior. You need Christ. So if that's never happened, that's the first and most important thing, that you should call upon Christ to be your Savior. There are some other lessons. Lessons that are very practical that I can run through in just a matter of just a handful of minutes here. What I learned and see presented here is preaching or presenting God's truth is supposed to be our focus. When we put this whole scenario in, in the setting, they had supernatural signs happening, but the supernatural signs didn't bring those people to a point where they were repentant. You see, the supernatural signs are cool, they're nice, but it is the preaching of the Word of God that brings people under conviction. It is the presentation of truth. It isn't, in this sense, he, Peter wasn't worried about let's please the crowd. He was concerned about presenting the truth, which I think is very important in our day and age. That we, we, we say, hey, listen, it's not about us being popular. It's not about us saw, being in a collective community's approval. We need to hold to the truth. We need to present the truth. We need to preach the truth. Even if some people in the crowd don't like it, we need to present the Word of God. It's not about numbers. It's not about being busy. As a church, it's not about us having ministries. It, ministries are good. I'm all for teen camp. I'm all excited about we had our VBS. I'm glad we can do those things. Those things are tools that enable us to present the Word of God. And that's all they are, are tools. They are not an end of themselves. We as a church have got to make sure that we keep this in our mind, that we as a church are dedicated to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Period. Not just doing things, but it's presenting the truth of God's Word. And so I think that's a huge lesson. And in our day and age, this is really getting hard. John MacArthur, a preacher from California, says, in an effort to appeal to people's interests, churches today emphasize many different programs, methods, approaches, not all of which are bad. But he says some in their proper place may even be helpful. But what has often been sacrificed in the flurry of activities and programs is the priority of preaching. He goes on and he makes it very clear that what we need to do is make sure that when we're teaching, we're teaching the Word of God. When we're preaching, we're presenting the truth, not just tickling people's fancies. But I find that when you even look at billboards, the appeal, how they advertise, very seldom will you see a church advertise, we do expository preaching. Not in America. In America, you have these types of things. The church the way you hope it could be. Well, then that whole service is designed to do what? Please people. Here's an advertisement. Come here, our pastor. Not very good, but short. That is not going on our billboard, I hope. Okay. I mean, definitely our part, you could, the first part may be true, but definitely not short. Okay. Here's an advertisement. Catch up with Jesus. Let us praise and relish him because he loves me from my head to my tomatoes. 
Okay, it's very clever, it's cutesy, but is, is preaching just to be coy? Is the Word of God supposed to be this catchy? Do, do you know what the verse that they're talking about? This strip for me? Lay aside every weight that doth so easily beset us. I bet you the majority of people who first see that billboard, that's not what they're thinking about. And there's this one too, an advertisement. Just to be clever and catchy. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is we're supposed to, in a condescending way, bring Jesus down to this idea that he's just, you know, folk like us? That Jesus gets us? Jesus is God. Jesus is holy. Here's an advertisement taken from the website for one church. There is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make everyone feel welcome. He goes on, as with all clergymen, our pastor's answer is God, but he slips God in at the very end and even then doesn't get heavy. In other words, he never uses the H word. In other words, we'll call it light gospel. It has some salvation as the old-time religions, but with a third less guilt. I find that very disgusting. In the sense that we're going to get away from the Word of God just to make everybody feel pleasant. Doesn't the Word of God warn us that this is what the end times is going to be like? Where it says in the Word of God, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be... Oh, I'm going to get to it in a minute. I'm sorry. So how do I apply this? Okay, What it applies to me... Okay, is I know my role. I need to preach the Word of God. What it applies to you is get under the preaching of the Word of God. That's what's important. Get under the teaching, the preaching of the Word of God. If you're looking for a church, pick, pick a church that stresses Bible teaching, not just programs, not just make you feel good. Get something where you're going to hear, what does God tell me? When teaching, if you are doing the teaching, emphasize the Bible, not your own opinions. Guard us as a church that we don't drift. The reason is because we are warned that he says, I charge you before the Lord Jesus Christ, that he who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing, what are we supposed to do until he comes back? Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching because there's going to come a time where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have, they want their ears to be tickled. And he says, don't let that happen. He says, turn aside from that. By God's grace, let's demand that we have Bible preaching and Bible teaching. Can I make just some other quick observations? Do not be a fear, a, a, afraid, become fearful of presenting the truth as sharing the gospel at work, as sharing the gospel with neighbors. Don't let naysayers keep you from presenting the truth. Do I find it intimidating when I'm sharing the Word of God, if I'm preaching, if somebody is going to do one of these? Yes. Yes. Do I feel a little bit paranoid? Yeah, so do you. If you're sharing the Word of God. But here Peter is preaching and he's saying, some of them are mocking, some of them are critical, but he says, I've got to present the truth. Jesus is God who came in the flesh. He was crucified, not because he did wrong, but because he came to give us life. You need him as Savior. Don't let people intimidate you into not speaking the truth. Now speak it with compassion. 
but speak it. Let me make this. Remember, just giving praises is great. It's a great tool that the disciples used as they spoke in tongues, speaking of the wonderful works of God that drew people. So what I learned from that is this. You know, if I want to be sharing with my neighbors the gospel, if, I, if you want to share with your coworkers, you want to share with family and friends, one of the ways that you want to be, help them to become interested in hearing about Jesus is stop complaining and praise God. Show them that you have a joy in your life. Show them that following Jesus is a good thing. Is a, brings peace, brings joy. Don't be a miserable, sad sack Christian. That is not going to be drawing people to say, I want what you have. I want to be miserable. Okay, present Christ with the praises. Take advantage these people started asking questions. Peter took advantage. They're, they're quite, God may have people coming to you and say, hey, this week they may say, what do you think about such and such? Take advantage of sharing the Word of God. Don't let it pass by. But uh, most of all, God has given you His Spirit that you may be a witness. That's what the whole Acts 1.8 is about. That he says, when the Spirit comes, you will have the power to be a witness. Since the Spirit has come into your life, then do what the Spirit wants you to do. Be a witness for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to live up to these standards. They're high standards for a church, for Christian people, but they are good standards. Help us with compassion, with conviction, with kindness to present truth, the truth of the Word of God, and help us to be people of joy, people of praise, people who delight in worshiping and serving you. If there's any here who does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Father, please, in our visiting time here afterwards, help them to come, to ask, to seek us out so that we can share with them the Word of God and they can make their decision for themselves. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for this wonderful message that, pre that Peter preached. Help us to understand this text more and more in the days ahead, we pray in Christ's name. Now listen, we're going to close. We're done have time for visiting. If you're here tonight and you are not sure that you're on your way to heaven, I'll gladly get somebody to talk with you, answer your questions, but don't leave with any doubts. Make sure that you know you're on your way to heaven because the Bible says these things have are written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Thanks for being here. Have a wonderful time. Let's do some visiting before we take off.